What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Alan Stein Jr is a performance coach consultant speaker and author He spent 15 years working with the highest performing basketball players on the planet Alan delivers high-energy keynotes and interactive workshops to improve performance, cohesion, and accountability. He inspires and empowers everyone he works with to take immediate action and improve mindset, habits, and productivity. In other words, Alan teaches how to utilize the same strategies in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. He has a new book, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best. In this episode, you will learn about the strategies used by elite performers and how you can raise your game. Hey guys, Sean here. Before we dive into this next episode, I wanted to give you a heads up. I will be doing a solo podcast. Yes, a first for the What Got You There podcast. It's going to be just me behind the microphone answering your questions, talking about things you're interested in. So you have any questions for me, email them over to info at whatgotyouthere.com. Or you can shoot me a DM or tag me on social media, Sean Delaney 23 or What Got You There podcast. Really looking forward to connecting with you guys, letting you guys hear a little bit more about me and my journey. So that's shoot those questions over to info at whatgotyouthere.com or via social. Thanks a lot, guys. Enjoyed this episode. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I have ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. 10,000 makes three types of shorts for every way you train. The interval short that's built for versatility and mobility and perfect if you're into a bit of everything. It comes with an optional built-in liner that's the perfect compression without being too tight. It's made from super fine Italian fabrics. Ooh, fancy. So it's not just functional, but more comfortable without losing any support. And you need that support. The foundation short that's built for durability and perfect for anything with barbells, strength training, or even a weekend adventure. The distance short, my personal favorite, it's a super lightweight short, breathable, and built for running. Also with a built-in liner, these shorts fade away while you run. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. Alan, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I am fantastic, Sean. It's great to connect with you. Yeah, no, excited to have you on. Excited to extract a lot of the value and lessons you, you've accumulated throughout the years. But before we dive into your story, I want to know, what's a typical morning like for you? Well, I've actually kind of revived 
revised my morning routine uh, as of late, and this has been for about two months now. I, I attended uh, kind of a mastermind retreat um, that helped me tweak my morning routine. Uh, so first and foremost, I don't necessarily have typical routines from a schedule standpoint. However, I try to make sure that I do my morning routine, uh, you know, very, very ritualistic and I do it every single day because that is something I can control. Uh, so the first 30 minutes when I wake up, uh, I consider kind of how I'm going to prime my day. Uh, the very first thing I do when I've done this for over 20 years is make my bed. Um, I, I know that there was the the Navy Admiral who had the big talk. Uh, I think he gave a commencement address and then a book talking about the importance of making your bed. And he is 100% right. Uh, I wish I would have given a talk and, and written a book on it because I was doing that for 15 years before that came out. But uh, I just, I love the discipline. I like starting my day with a small act of discipline. Uh, then I drink some room temperature water uh, and I do some breathing exercises. Um, very quick, it's seven minutes uh, and it's kind of a combination to get my heart going, uh, get my lungs going. Uh, I do some in through the nose, out through the nose, in through the nose, out through the mouth, in through the mouth, out through the mouth kind of routine uh, while I'm kind of bouncing around just to get things flowing. Uh, and then I do some, some stretches. They're kind of modified yoga poses, uh, just some things to, to get my hips and my back and, and so forth uh, loose. And again, just get me moving. And I'm doing all of this in silence uh, so that I can really focus on my breath and focus on my thoughts. And then I do uh, a 10 minute meditation. Uh, I love the Headspace app. It's a, gu a guided meditation, takes exactly 10 minutes. Um, and this morning was my 532nd day consecutive day in a row of doing the Headspace app. Uh, and it just helps me uh, start my morning in kind of a mindful, grounded way. Uh, and then as soon as I'm done that, uh, I take a cold shower for about five minutes. Uh, and there's nothing pleasant about the cold shower except for when you get out it's just incredibly invigorating and it, it really kind of wakes me up and gets me going. Uh, and that from start to finish is about 30 minutes. And then from there, I'm ready to tackle whatever I've got on that day's agenda. Uh, sometimes uh, I'll extend that and go to a hot yoga class or go do some strength work. Uh, sometimes I'll step right, right into my home office and get cranking away on some work. Sometimes I've got to go catch a flight to go speak. So really outside of that morning routine, uh, who knows what the day is going to throw at me, but I always try to keep control of that. And I do that when I travel as well. Uh, I'm a huge believer in consistency. So uh, that's really how I start every single day. Wow. A lot to unpack there. I almost feel like we could spend the entire podcast. I want to circle back though. You said a couple months ago, you attended a mastermind group or a mastermind retreat. Sorry about that. What was that mastermind and what even inclined you to, to take part in this? Well, there's a gentleman named Aubrey Marcus, and I, I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with Aubrey. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, an amazing book that I highly recommend uh, called Own the Day, Own Your Life. Uh, he's the founder of a uh, human performance supplement company called Onnit, based down in Austin, Texas. And he's just, he's really a fascinating guy. I mean, he's he, he's got some incredibly eclectic thoughts on a variety of different things, um, but he's real into to wellness and not just physical fitness, but emotional and mental wellness as well. And uh, I've been attracted to his podcast and his book and, and his post on social uh, for a while. So uh, when he decided to hold um, this mastermind out in California a couple months ago, I jumped at the chance to go and really enjoyed learning from him and the other folks on his team and, and meeting some other people. I'm a big retreat guy. I go on two or three of them a year and 
and really enjoy and benefit from those. Um, but I just kind of tweaked what my normal morning routine was, um, after he had shared some of the things that had been working well for him. And the big one was the breath work. Um, I wasn't doing any kind of breath work right in the morning. Um, so I just made some modifications and, you know, my guess is if, if you and I connect a year from today, uh, I'm hoping my morning routine will have morphed and grown and matured then too, and, and, and will continue to level up. So I don't ever get stuck in doing something. I believe in consistency, but I keep my eyes and ears and heart open to learning anything and everything I can to constantly keep things fresh uh, and to improve. No, I, I love that approach. I love that perspective. I love how you say you hope your morning routine has leveled up if we talk in a year from now. Very familiar with Aubrey, the stuff he's doing. You mentioned you attend two or three retreats each year. So I understand that you must find a lot of value in spending money for coaches or these experiences. How long have you been doing that for? It's It's been heightened for a couple of years now. Now, throughout my entire professional career, I always placed tremendous value in learning and in development. So I was always um, devouring books. Um, I mean, back even in the buying, literally buying books on tape. I mean, I had cassette tapes um, and attending conferences and events. Uh, but what I've really leveled up over the last couple of years is I've increased those investments several times over. And now most of my focus, I enjoy going to these more fully immersive two, three, four, five day retreats, um, that aren't just on the tangible learning, but it's also about exploring yourself and making connections with other people. Uh, and, and I, I do more of those than just going to kind of seminars and conferences. Now I speak at a lot of seminars and conferences and anytime I can, uh, I make sure to either come early or stay late to watch the other speakers because I always want to learn. Uh, but as far as what I invest my money in and what I enjoy most are, are these more fully immersive uh, of retreats. And I've been doing those for a few years now and love them. You know, one of the biggest changes um, in me as a man over the last few years is what I choose to invest my money in. And, and I now, I mean, I, I'm, I don't live in one of those little tiny houses. I have a three, a modest three bedroom apartment, but I very much class, classify myself as a minimalist. Um, I've, I've given away, uh, donated or thrown out probably 60% of everything I've had over the last couple of years. And, and I like that mindset and, and I choose to, uh, there's two things I pour my money into outside of my children, uh, food. I absolutely love food and these types of retreats and professional development experiences. And the reason I say I've changed is I used to be much more into material items, uh, when I was younger, you know, uh, cars and clothes and, and those types of things. And now for me, it's all about experience. And, and I believe that's, that's the reason I like food. It's, that's an uh, experiential, um, endeavor. So, so food and retreats are my two big things. It's funny, I just got done an hour with a Ramit Sethi who is a financial guru and he talks about money dials and these are the things that you just mentioned, food for you and retreats and take the money that you would have spent on frivolous things and allocate it and double down on those things. So it's very interesting hearing you talk about that. What, what occurred that you had this shift and you became more minimalist? It started to just kind of gradually happen over time. Uh, for anybody that's moved, um, you... When you move, and I'm talking about homes, I mean, you basically have to take a physical inventory of all of your crap because you got to take it somewhere else. And uh, even people that are somewhat hoarders usually downsize a little bit when they move 
because they're like, man, we don't want to take all of this crap to the next place. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that I'm amicably divorced. Uh, I, I get along really well with my ex-wife. We make excellent co-parents. We're good friends. Uh, and I bring that up because uh, we were living together and married for five years and then you know, been divorced for a while now. But when I moved out several years ago, uh, that was the first kind of downsizing. And I was taking everything that I had in this home that we shared with our three kids and I had to take that to a two bedroom apartment. So I was almost forced to downsize and I got rid of a ton of stuff and realized that I didn't miss any of it. And then I thought, well, man, all this time I've had this stuff and I didn't need it because I'm not missing it. Is there more stuff that I can get rid of? And that's what kind of started the process. Uh, and then funny enough, I actually went from a two bedroom apartment. I decided to move to a bigger three bedroom apartment just because my kids were getting bigger and I needed some more space for them. But when I moved from the two bedroom to the three bedroom, I got rid of even more stuff. So I didn't look at that as an opportunity to fill my new place with more crap. I looked at it as an opportunity to downsize again and really only started bringing the necessities to this three bedroom. And I've been in here for a couple of years. Uh, and then I started reading up and watching stuff on minimalism. Uh, there's an excellent documentary on Netflix uh, these two guys, they call themselves the minimalists. Uh, they have a podcast. I mean, and, and that took it to an entirely new level. And now I would say every two months or so I walk through my apartment and I go through my drawers in my closet and I say anything that I haven't used in the last couple of months. And I know I'm not going to use in the next couple of months, I'm going to donate it to someone that can use it. Or if it's really crap, I'm just going to throw it out. And I kind of purge every couple months and it's a great, great feeling. Um, uh, part of one of my affinities before was I was a sneakerhead. I mean, I had, I don't know, 80 to 100 pairs of really nice sneakers. Uh, and those were one of the first things to go. And that was the most challenging by far. Um, but I found some good homes for those sneakers for some kids that could really use them and appreciate them more than I would. Uh, so that felt good. And really the only exception to my minimalistness, if that's even a word, is I'm sitting in my home office now and the walls are covered with pictures and I have shelves full of books and kind of memorabilia and mementos uh, from all of my work. So my, my office has a lot of stuff. Now it's, it's military clean, but there's a lot of stuff. But those things hold a special place in my heart. Those things I consider valuable because they remind me of experiences. Uh, so for me, that stuff will stay. But any other area in my apartment you'll probably think I just moved in two days ago because you're like, where's all your stuff? You mentioned the photos on the wall. They hold a special place in your heart. Let's discuss some of those photos on the wall, some of the people in those pictures along with you. I think that'll help the listeners understand more about you and where you come from. Sure. Well, certainly I, I've in my bedroom, I have pictures of my kids and I, I try to update those as often as possible because I have eight-year-old twin sons and a six-year-old daughter and they're growing all the time. So I keep a couple of them from when they were real little, because that's just nostalgic. But then I keep those updated. Uh, and that's in my bedroom. Uh, in my office, uh, I have tons of pictures from my previous work, which was in elite level basketball. So uh, I've got pictures of, of me and Kevin Durant when he was in high school uh, and on draft night and, and some of the teams I worked with back then. I was very fortunate to do a lot of work with Nike basketball in their summer skills academy. So uh, right behind me, I've got a picture of me and KD and me and LeBron and me and Kobe, uh, me and Kyrie, me and Anthony Davis, me and Chris Paul. Uh, and, and those, they just remind me of, of some wonderful experiences that I had and, and I don't want to forget them. And it, 
you know, I'm a big believer too in, in the power of the subconscious and, and kind of how important our environment is. And, and when I walk into my office and I see these things that bring back such fond memories, you know, it's just a good feeling. Like I love being in my office and I love the work that I do. Uh, so that's kind of the perfect nurturing environment for me to continue to, to hopefully perform at a high level. You mentioned that's your previous work, and we're going to get into what you're currently doing. But how does someone get involved in working with elite-level athletes and elite-level teams? You start by working with non-elite-level athletes and non-elite-level <laughs> teams, and you, and you earn the right to matriculate up. And, and I say that partially tongue-in-cheek, but it's, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I was a fairly decent high school basketball player. And then and I played at a small college down in North Carolina. And I knew that I wanted to be connected to the game of basketball. Um, and really in the late nineties, when I graduated college, there weren't a lot of options. Like most people that loved basketball, you know, just became your typical history teacher and then coached basketball after school. But I was not very passionate about the teaching part. I just wanted to coach. Uh, so I, I started my own business and I became a basketball performance coach, which is basically a basketball strength and conditioning coach. I never taught the skills of the game. I only taught how to improve athleticism, uh, mind body connection, uh, and those areas of performance. And, you know, I did that for almost 20 years uh, before I made the most recent pivot uh, to become a professional speaker in the corporate space. But to answer your question, um, I started by training anyone and everyone that wanted to train. So this was general personal training. This was moms and dads and people that just wanted to improve fitness. Uh, and then slowly as I started to, to earn my, my reps and work on my craft, uh, then I kind of focused more just on athletes. So once I had enough business coming in to pay my bills, I said, I just want to work with athletes. It doesn't matter what sport. I don't care how old they are. I don't care how good they are, but I want to work with athletes. And, and I did that for a few years. And then I started to narrow down even further and said, well, I only want to work with basketball players uh, because that's my true love and my true passion. Uh, so then I started just working with basketball players. And then, uh, that started to open up some doors for some other opportunities, um, that thankfully materialized and, and led to some of these other things. Uh, most of which were, uh, there, there are two schools here in the Washington DC area, uh, Montrose Christian, which is where Kevin Durant graduated. And then DeMatha Catholic high school, uh, which has had a whole host of NBA players, uh, like Victor Oladipo of, of the Indiana Pacers and working at those two schools for 13 years, um, allowed me to see kind of the before picture of some elite level kids. There's a dozen or so players that are in the NBA right now that I got a chance to meet and work with when they were 14, 15 years old and, and see what, you know, see what they did before they became great. And then because both Montrose and DeMatha were Nike elite schools, that's what gave me the opportunity to do the summer skills academies and stuff with Jordan brand and USA basketball. So then I got to work events for the guys I just mentioned uh, with the pictures on my wall and I got to see guys and observe guys behind the scenes after they had already been established elite players. So I've had a very interesting journey where I've gotten to see the before and the after picture of what it takes to be an elite basketball player. And, and now I take those lessons that I've learned and I translate them to business and I show businesses uh, and leaders and organizations how to use the same mindsets and rituals and routines and disciplines that elite players use and how they can apply that to what they're currently doing. So, uh, but I had to earn the right to be able to work up, you know, the, the invitation to work Nike summer skills Academy in 2007 didn't come out of thin air. It came because I had a proven track record working with one of their 
elite high schools that had some really top level players. And I only got that opportunity because I was able to work with some other kids. So it's, it's kind of this chain reaction. Yeah, you mentioned a chain reaction. A saying I say frequently is momentum breeds momentum. And it sounds like you were able to compile these different successes on top of each other. I want to put you on the spot a bit. Who was the most talented 14-year-old basketball player you got to work with? Kevin Durant. And it wasn't even close. Why was it not even close? What stands out with a young athlete like that, that, that you know he's on to great things? Well, let, let me also preface it with... Now I could name a whole handful of guys that were just as passionate and worked just as hard as Kevin, uh, and absolutely maximized every ounce of their potential, but they're not anyone that you would have heard of or anyone that your listeners would have heard of, um, because they're not famous. And, you know, I mean, Kevin is arguably the second best player in the world at present. Uh, and these guys, but they were just as incredible as high school players and maximizing what they could do as he was. So he was by far the most talented, um, at that age. And, uh, to answer your question, there were a few things about him that really stuck out. Uh, one, he was so passionate about playing the game. Uh, he wasn't playing because someone made him or because he was tall, uh, or because someone said, Hey, you might be able to make money doing this. He did and still does play this game because he loves to play. And the fame and the riches are just an outcome and a, and a result of his desire to play the game. So that's one. Uh, another, uh, was he was incredibly coachable, uh, which takes us, you know, uh, takes humility. I mean, he knew that he didn't have all the answers at 14 or 15, which of course no one does. Um, and he was always open to coaching and always open to surrounding himself with people that would push him and make him better. And he always had a respect for the game and a respect for the basics. He never tried to cheat the process. He knew that if his goal was to play in the NBA, that there was a distinct process that it was going to take to get there. And then he was going to have to make tremendous amounts of sacrifices during the unseen hours to put in the reps to deserve a chance to play in the NBA. And he never once tried to circumvent that process or skip it. He lived in it. And you take that with his unbelievable natural born talent and that's why you have someone is as good as Kevin is now and, and, and full transparency. I mean, even at 14 or 15, as amazing as he was, I had no idea he was going to be this good. I just knew that he had the raw materials to develop into something pretty special, but, but it's, it's amazing. So I could not have predicted he would be this good, but I'm also not even remotely surprised and while I would never do it because it's somewhat disparaging, I can list 10 guys for every Kevin Durant that had the potential to be really amazing, but they didn't do or didn't have the qualities that I just mentioned. So they never made it. You mentioned respecting the basics. I want to uncover that. How important are the basics for all athletes, all businesses, all entrepreneurs? I mean, they're the foundation to which the rest of the house is built, you know, and, and the hard part is the basics aren't sexy. The, the basics are usually mundane and they're boring and they're monotonous. And that's why it takes tremendous discipline and focus to still practice them daily. You know, in basketball, that for the most part is going to be your footwork and your shooting mechanics. Uh, you know, in a business, you can extrapolate that to whatever your business is. What are the basic building blocks to the success of your business? And are these things that you're emphasizing and practicing every single day? See, one thing I think a lot of people make a mistake with is they believe the word basic and the word easy are synonymous and they're not just because something's basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. 
if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And, and we live in this world that, that pretty much encourages us to skip steps and encourages us to circumvent the process. I mean, social media all but begs us to chase what's new and what's hot and what's flashy and what's sexy and just skip what's basic. Uh, and that's a grave mistake. It will catch up with you at some point. Uh, so you have to, to find a way to never get bored with the basics. And one more thought on that only because it's fresh in my mind because I saw it a couple of weeks ago and I've seen it numerous times. When an NFL team loses two or three games in a row, inevitably the coach comes on in the post-game press conference and says something to the effect of on Monday at practice, we're going to get back to the basics. And I always kind of chuckle. Uh, certainly, I don't think I'm a better coach or leader than NFL coaches. These guys are geniuses at what they do. But I do kind of laugh because I think to myself, if if the basics is what solves your problem, then why did you ever leave them in the first place? Like, why do you have to go back to them? Why did you not consistently do them? And then that wouldn't be an issue. And, you know, if you know anything about Bill Belichick, uh, I mean, that's that's like his mantra. Same thing with Nick Saban. Those guys practice the basics and the fundamentals every single day. You know, I mean, you've got the, the college football championship coming up and I guarantee you two days before that game, there'll be something at their practice that, that they're doing that is incredibly basic. And that's why guys like Bill Belichick and Nick Saban win at a, a high level consistently because they never skip the basics and they live in the process. Very sound advice. You've worked with some of the most elite people on the planet. I'm wondering, is there anything that you saw out of one of those athletes that just blew your mind from an athletic standpoint? I'll bring up an example of NFL running back Adrian Peterson, and he used to do 36-inch box jumps with 80-pound dumbbells in each hand. Any of the basketball guys do anything that just blew your mind? Wow, that's pretty impressive. I mean, doing a 36-inch box jump or holding 80 pound dumbbells is each <laughs> impressive in its own right. So to to mix those things up, uh, wow. Um, first of all, if you've ever been up close during an NBA game, maybe sat courtside or been in a practice, that's really the only way you can have a strong appreciation for the, the raw physicality that these guys have. It, watching it on TV doesn't do it justice because you watch it on TV. You know, if you're six, five, 215 pounds in an NBA game, you're like a normal size guy. Yeah. You're just an average looking guy because of who you're standing next to. So when you watch it on TV, I don't think anyone gets a real appreciation. When you sit courtside or you go to a practice, you're like, these guys are insane. I mean, it, it, you've got guys that are 6'9", 6'10", with 3% body fat who weigh 260, who are just like a freight train. I mean, LeBron James is about as perfectly designed physical specimen uh, as, as anyone could make. So uh, that in and of itself is pretty remarkable. So not as much from the physical standpoint, but I will say that the first time I met Stephen Curry uh, was back in 2007 um, after he had finished his freshman year at Davidson. And he was anything but impressive from a physical standpoint. I mean, he looked like he was 14 years old. Um, and, and I don't even know that he had armpit hair. I mean, he was, he was so young looking then. Uh, but after the very first workout of this skills Academy, he and I had never met, but he grabbed me and said, coach, will you rebound for me? Cause I don't leave the gym until I swish five free throws in a row, swish five free throws in a row. I, I, I don't know. Um, if your listeners have a tremendous amount of basketball playing experience, but if they don't, let me tell you all, that is an incredibly high standard. A swish by definition is a perfect shot. It doesn't hit the rim. It doesn't hit the backboard. It gets its name because of the sound it makes when it goes nothing 
but net. And to swish five in a row is an unparalleled standard. Uh, I mean, there were times where he would swish four in a row. He would hit a little bit of the rim on the fifth one. It would still go in. He was still mathematically perfect. He was still five for five, but that wasn't good enough for him. He would start over. Uh, And if memory serves, I don't think it ever took him longer than 12 to 15 minutes to swish five in a row. And, And I firmly believe Stephen Curry will go down in history as the greatest shooter the game has ever seen and that gives me insight that 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 him being the greatest is not luck and it's not accident and it's not even because his dad played in the NBA it's because he's willing to hold himself to an unparalleled standard so from a physical standpoint there's nothing that impressive about ma- swishing five in a row from a mental standpoint i think that's the equivalent of jumping on a 36 inch box holding 80 pound dumbbells i love the level of excellence these greats hold themselves to I want to get into leadership training. It's something that you're an expert on. You do a lot of right now. Big, broad question. When you hear the term leadership, what comes to mind for you? Emotional intelligence, self-awareness, compassion, confidence, strength of conviction, decisiveness, caring. I know those are all kind of one-offs, but 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 when I envision the best leaders that I've ever been around and those that mentor me now and that I learn from, uh, those are the those are the traits that they have. You know, they're not they don't rule with an iron fist. Uh, they don't put their fingers in their ears when other people are talking. They don't believe that they're the only ones. Uh, I don't think I mentioned humility. That's an incredibly important one. Sorry, that didn't make my original list. They don't think they know everything. Uh, they, they they're they're confident in what you know their position holds and and what they can do, uh, but they never think that they have all the answers. They're always looking to grow and to develop, and they're always open to others that can help them do that. So I know that was kind of a random list, but those are the traits that immediately jump out to me. Yeah, no, I just wanted to know what came top of mind for you. You see so many different leadership styles, and there was a few you basically negated right there. What are the most effective leadership styles that you've seen in your work? What I found very interesting, so I was at Montrose Christian for seven years, and I worked for a legendary coach there named Stu Vetter. Um, I mean, one of the best high school coaches of all time, and and he's old enough that he could biologically be my father. I'm 43 years old and he's got to be close to 60 now. And, and he was very old school in the way that he coached that team. He coached through fear. He was very much from the Bobby Knight school of, of coaching, uh, not through curse words. One of the things I always <clears throat> respected about coach Vetter is he never, ever cursed, but he coached through fear and he coached what I call top down. This is my program. This is my way. You will do it my way or you will hit the highway. That was how he coached. And and it worked fairly well, especially in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, But then it it morphed into, and that's where I think we are now. I don't believe that style is what's most effective. And I don't think that's how you get people to perform at their best now. Uh, When I left Montrose, I went to DeMatha and I worked for a gentleman named Mike Jones, who's still the coach there and is as brilliant of a coach as I've ever met at any level in any sport. And coach Jones is only a couple of years older than me. So in, instead of kind of this father to son age difference, we're basically like brothers, we're peers. And he is very much a player's coach that yes, he's strong in his convictions and he knows what he's doing, but he's incredibly open uh, to the group, to his assistants and to his players. And, you know, he's kind of the ringleader. He's, he's the conductor 
and allows everyone to play their instrument so that we can make beautiful music together. And, and I found that very interesting, his different, his, his approach being that different. And, you know, from a tactical standpoint, the way they would be organized in their practice plans and their strategies were almost identical and meticulous but very different in how they approached it. You know, Coach Jones is very much a high emotional intelligence connection players type coach. And, and Coach Vetter was more of a, a coaching through fear. And you will practice hard because if you don't, you will find out what's behind door number two. And trust me, you don't want to know what's behind door number two. And Coach Jones just comes at it from a different approach. Yeah, no one wants to know what's behind door number two. You mentioned Mike Jones down in the Damatha. I don't know if this will be easy, but do you have any stories to show his emotional intelligence and how he worked with his players specifically? Oh, I have several. Um, One, and this is not so much a story, but this will give you a crystal clear view of the type of man and leader he is. Every single day before practice, before workouts and before games, he sweeps the floor. And now, again, DeMatha is not a professional organization, but DeMatha has been a renowned basketball program for 50 years. And clearly, there are people at DeMatha that can sweep the floor, building service people, managers, uh, even players. But he chooses to do that every day because it, it recenters him and he realizes that this program is bigger than me and that there is nothing required of this program that is beneath me. And I will sweep the floor every day just as a gentle reminder. And it's also out of service because I want to have a clean floor for my players to play on. And this is a way that I can help serve them. Uh, so that's, that's one that's, you know, something about him that's, that's remarkable. Um, I do remember vividly one of my last years there, uh, we were playing in a championship game and ESPN consistently ranks the WCAC, the conference that DeMatha is in as the number one high school boys basketball conference in the country. I mean, we regularly have two or three teams in our conference that are ranked in the top 15 in the whole United States. So it's a really, really good conference. Uh, so just making it to the conference championship uh, is a huge accomplishment. And we were playing our arch rival Gonzaga and it was a great back and forth game. I mean, it was an instant classic and the game was tied and it was their ball. And all we needed was a defensive stop and we would go to overtime. And we had a rem- and a remarkable freshman playing, um, which is very rare at DeMatha to have a freshman starting. And uh, with a few seconds left, he actually stole the ball and drove the length of the court. So, of course, while he's driving the length of the court, we're thinking we're going to win the game. He's going to dunk the ball. The game's going to be over. We're champs. Uh, and uh, in an act of heroism, one of their players sprinted the floor brilliantly and and fouled him so that he couldn't make the shot. Um But then we're thinking, okay, this kid is a freshman. He's a future McDonald's All-American. He's a future pro. All he has to do now is make one of two free throws, and we are the WCAC champs. And this kid is a really accomplished player, and he missed them both. And so, of course, I mean, you could just feel the deflation. Anyone that was rooting for DeMatha, whether they were on the court or in the stands, I mean, you felt this this just sigh let out. And of course, no one was more disappointed than the young man that just missed the shots. I mean, he's 15 years old and feels like he just let his team down. And, and I remember cause I was standing quite near him, coach Jones just put his arm around him and, and said something to the effect of, you know, 
I know you're disappointed. I know you wanted to make those, but, but it's okay. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And I just want you to know, I love you and let's get this done in overtime. Don't worry about it. Let's move on. And, and the, the compassion and the grace, um, and the class that he showed was remarkable because I know that in, in his stomach, I, coach Jones must've been sick to his stomach that we didn't just win the game there. And I know his heart dropped, uh, for how that young man must've been feeling. But what was equally remarkable was we got our asses kicked in overtime. I mean, the, the lack of momentum really showed and they beat us down pretty good in overtime. And I want to say we were down eight to 10 points with maybe 30 seconds left. Uh, clearly the game was mathematically over and coach Jones called timeout. And I mean, fans were booing people were like, why are you calling timeout when the game is over? And he brought all the guys over and looked them in the eye and said, look, we're obviously not going to win this game. And I know that you're disappointed. I'm very disappointed that we're not going to win, but one, it's okay. And two, you will go out there and you will lose with class. You will lose with with grace. You will hold your head high and you will not do anything to tarnish the name on the front of your jersey because this program is bigger than all of us. And we win together and we also lose together. So just remember that for this remaining 30 seconds. And that was the end of the timeout. And and I just remember being absolutely floored that that he was able to impart a life lesson like that, which I know stuck with those kids because it stuck with me. I mean, and that's what sport is all about. It's a conduit or a platform or a vehicle to teach much bigger life lessons. And for a guy like that to be able to teach that type of life lesson uh, in an adverse moment just speaks volumes of how how remarkable he is. Oh, I love you sharing those stories. I'm I'm interested. Are there any leaders you look to or have studied outside of a sports setting? Oh, absolutely. And and you know what's interesting? I've always tried to look outside of my direct industry to improve my craft and to improve what I do. Such um, great advice there. Well, it's, it's vital. I mean, yes, when I was in basketball, I absolutely learned from the best players and coaches that I could, but I always tried to study other, other avenues. And when you talk about performance, I mean, you can study the military, uh, you can study business, you can study the arts, you know, musicians and actors. And, and really that's what I try to do. And I try to pick from all of it, uh, you know, perfect example. And, and I'm not dodging your question. I will get back to that. I'm a professional speaker by trade. Uh, I study other professional speakers, uh, but I also relentlessly study uh, um, musicians and, and, and I happen to be a big hip hop fan. So I study rappers and, and I study stand up comedians uh, because I think both of those uh, can teach me a tremendous amount about being an orator and, and the spoken word and, and how to change, you know, volume and pitch and tempo, how to use facial expressions and body language. I mean, if, if you watch uh, a rap video and I know I sound like such a a white guy saying that, but if you watch a hip hop video or you watch a stand up comedian, they're communicating with more than just their words. I mean, there's, they're painting pictures and creating visual imagery with things other than just the spoken word. And so I've studied those two things relentlessly to improve my craft as a, as a professional speaker and same thing in, in leadership. I mean, one thing I'm learning now, it's, it's been known for a while that businesses like to bring in coaches to talk to their business. But what I've been urging basketball coaches to do now is to start bringing in business leaders from their community to come talk to their teams because business leaders know just as much about how to create a cohesive unit and have championship level culture 
as coaches do. And, and coaches would be foolish to only try to, to learn from their little small circle. So yes, absolutely. Some of the best leaders and some of the best cultures I've ever seen, um, are on the business side. You mentioned these business leaders to build culture. And I want to talk about culture in the framework of teamwork. What does it take to really build a great culture in a team? I use what I call a success flow. And the the base of that flow is identity. And identity is kind of the summation of answers to questions like, who are we? What are we about? What do we believe? What problems do we solve? Who do we solve them for? What is our vision? What is our purpose? Why should all of us make personal sacrifices for the greater good of this organization? The answers to those questions will be your identity. And once everyone is crystal clear on the identity in an organization uh, or team, those are synonymous, then you need to collectively create standards to uphold that identity. So standards, uh, people kind of think that they're rules. Rules are usually created from the top and are passed down and expected to be followed. Uh, very much like I, I mentioned with Coach Vetter. Coach Vetter made rules and you followed them. Uh, whereas Coach Jones uh, has kind of taken a, a page out of Coach K's playbook from Duke and creates standards. In order for us to live out this identity, what, what are the types of things all of us need to do every single day in order to make that happen? And those are your standards. And then the next on that flow is accountability. How well can we hold each other accountable to these standards that we've agreed upon in order to live out our identity. And, and a few things about accountability that are so important. Uh, one, holding someone accountable is something you do for them. It's not something you do to them. When you hold someone accountable, you're showing them that you care about them, that you believe they're better than what they're currently showing you, and you want to hold them accountable to a higher standard so that they can perform at a higher level. And the other thing is, in great organizations, Accountability is not just vertical on the org chart. It's also horizontal, which means teammates hold each other accountable. Direct reports hold their superiors accountable just as much as the inverse. Uh, and the degree at which an organization holds their people accountable to the standards that they set for the identity that they've created, that's what culture is. You know, culture is not what you talk about it's not what you put in fine print on your website or up in a big gold sign by the front desk. Culture is what you do every single day. It's, it's, it's the marrying of your beliefs and your behaviors and the experience that you've created for everybody on your team and everybody on the team that you serve. That's what culture really is. It's a living, breathing thing that, that has to be upheld daily. And your culture is the number one determining factor on your long-term sustainable results. Whether you're talking about winning DeMath has been winning for 50 years, or you're talking about a business like Amazon or Google or Nike, culture is what determines that long-term success. And that's, that's the success flow uh, that I've seen in the sport world and I've seen in the business world. I love that success flow. You clearly have spent a ton of time on this, articulating this. When you're about to work with a new team, a new business, what are you doing to prep for that meeting? So a good portion of what I do when I speak, so sometimes I speak at events and at, at conferences where it's kind of a, a collection of people that are all coming to attend, uh, each from their own respective businesses. And then sometimes I go in and speak internally to a business where everyone is on the same team. And, and those, of course, will have slightly different goals. Uh, but as a speaker, uh, I'm always coming from a place of service. Like when I'm getting ready to take the stage and I'm speaking at a conference, 
It ain't about me. It's about the audience. And how can I deliver value to them? You know, how can I certainly entertain them? How can I engage them? But how can I educate them and give them tangible, practical takeaways that they can implement immediately to improve their lives? That's my number one focus. So uh, if I'm going to speak at a conference, then when I have my pre-event call, I'm trying to find out anything and everything I can about the audience. Who's going to be there? What, what background do they have? Where are they coming from? What is it that they want to get out of this? You know, what would make this a 10 out of 10, a home run for them? You know, what are, what are their major pain points and problems that they need solved? So the more homework I can do on the audience, then the better I can serve them. Uh, and then it's the same, same recipe for I'm going, if I'm going to work for a company, it's, well, what are you guys trying to get out of this? If you could wave a magic wand when I'm done speaking, you could do this, this, and this. What would those things be? What are your pain points and your challenges and your problems? What can I best help with? And I do as much research uh, and get as much intel as possible. And then I craft what I do based on what they need instead of me just going up there with a cookie cutter approach and saying, hey, this is what I'm going to talk about. And I sure hope this is valuable to you. I'm trying to take hope out of the equation. Hope is not a strategy. What I try to do is have great preparation so that when I show up and I'm in their boardroom or conference room or I'm on stage, that I'm delivering something that I know will be of value to them. Staying along the theme with great teams, great organizations, I know you said you don't take a cookie cutter approach. Curious though, how does communication factor into any one of those teams? Communication is always a major factor. And, and let, me, let me clarify something. When I say I don't take a cookie cutter approach, I don't go in with this one size fits all. This is what I talk about. I hope you like it. Uh, I'd make everything as customized as possible. However, with that said, one, I always stay in my wheelhouse of expertise. So I'm only talking about things that I believe I've earned the right to share with others and that I know fairly well. And most organizations have the same problems, which means if, if I come in and talk to your company, I'm going to make sure that it's customized and individualized for you. But then let's just say that, that your brother owns a company, a completely different company in a completely different industry, and I go speak to his company, there's still going to be a lot of overlap. It's not like I'm giving a new talk every time. I'm going to tell many of the same stories and have many of the same lessons, but that's because he probably has many of the same problems with his organization that you have with yours. So uh, when I say that, if, if you were to sit in on five of my different talks to different groups different organizations, you'll still hear a lot of overlap and a lot of the same things, but it's because those things are in my wheelhouse and those things tend to come up most often. Uh, it was always the same in basketball. It was always funny to me that uh, a father would bring his teenage son in for training and he'd be as serious as can be. And he'd be like, all right, Alan, I, I need my son to put on weight. I need him to get stronger and I need him to jump higher. And I would just kind of internally laugh and like, yeah, you just described every high school basketball player in the world. You think it's unique, but it's not. I mean, your son is unique, but his problems aren't. So yes, I'm going to customize a training program for your son, but I hope you realize that that same customized program I'm doing with so many other kids because they have the same problems that your son has. So just wanted to make sure that I, I clarified that. And, and that's really how I be, build out my speaking engagements. I have a vast a la carte menu of stories and lessons and statistics and takeaways. And, you know, some of them are under leadership. Some of them are under teamwork. Uh, some of them are under culture. And uh, if I was doing a pre-event call with you and, and you're telling me what it is that you're looking to get out of this, I'm just kind of checking different boxes. 
and then I'll go back and I'll build the cake from this recipe. You've given me the recipe. I have all the ingredients in my a la carte menu, and now I'm going to build it to your specific needs. So, okay, on what Sean just told me, all right, I need a couple of these things from the leadership pile. Oh yeah, I'm going to use this story on teamwork. And he said, culture's an issue. So I'm going to share this statistic on culture. And then I, I build it out and it's very specific to your needs, but their chances are somebody else is going to need the same thing. And, and that was a, a long winded skirt around what you asked about communication. Communication is an issue I would say with almost every team and every organization and uh, some obviously worse than others, but it's something that every leader and every organization continues to try to improve is for effective communication. And I know I'm doing an awful job of it at present because I'm talking so much, but the most important part of communication is what you're doing so brilliantly right now, which is listening. Active listening is the gold to real communication and to making change. And the better you can actively listen, the better you can lead, the better you can sell. No, Alan, you're the guest. I absolutely love your little riff there. I, it really got me interested, actually, when you pivoted your business. You went from, from training elite-level athletes to then having to build out this entire speaking business. When you first had the idea to transition into that, what did it look like? How, how were you creating this business to set yourself up for success? It's important for your listeners to know, I mean, I've been professionally speaking for 15 years. Just 13 of those years was in the direct basketball space. And I was speaking to coaches uh, at clinics and I was speaking to players at camps. But the act of getting up in front of other human beings and having all eyes on me and me sharing things that I'm passionate about and knowledgeable about, uh, I'm not new to that. That's something I've, I've really enjoyed doing uh, for a long time. Uh, what's new is the audience is I went from standing in a gym wearing shorts, a tank top and Jordans to now being in a suit and tie and dress shoes in a boardroom or on a stage. So the audience is the only thing that's changed. Uh, but certainly with that, you know, a whole bunch of nuances and, and things have had to change and I've had to level up. So making the leap to being a professional corporate speaker, um, wasn't as hard on, on the tactical side, but starting and growing a business from scratch where I had no brand recognition at all. I mean, to this day, I've never had a corporate job in my entire life. That was where the real challenge was. But where I'm incredibly thankful was, you know, I built a, a training business from scratch, you know, in my mid-20s. And I can look back at all of the things that I did wrong there and all of the things I should have done different. And I've been able to take all of those lessons and apply them to my new business and really respect and appreciate the process and value the relationships and connections that I have. And, and and study folks outside of my industry, study professional speakers that have amazing speaking businesses, not just amazing speakers, but they have amazing speaking businesses and study them. So in the two years that I've been doing this on the corporate side, I've made as much ground as it took me a decade doing it on the training side because I've been able to learn. And of course, with age usually comes some added wisdom, comes some maturity. I mean, I'm I'm a better man today at 43 than I was when I was building my business in my late 20s. Uh, and all of that additional experience and expertise has, has helped tremendously. So uh, I'm on a much faster track now, which made the leap much easier. Yeah, I actually want to know about the specifics of that faster track. You mentioned that the ground you covered in those two years was, was more than you covered in a decade. I know you switched to the business side, the corporate side of things. What specifically were you doing to get those new clients? The very first thing I did when I made this decision, and um, you know, I, I don't know if you want to call it 
destiny or fate or, or whatever word, but, but here's, here's why the whole thing transpired. Um, I won't be overly dramatic and say that I was getting burnt out on basketball, but I will say that I wasn't finding the enjoyment and the love in it that I was previously. And, you know, uh, I'm a guy, I know that life is short and I believe that investing a good portion of my time into something other than what I'm really passionate about is just not a good way to live. And I have so much respect for players and coaches and for the game itself that they deserve to have my best. And the only way I can be at my best is if I'm all in. And I was speaking at, uh, an event in Germany, uh, a big international basketball event. I mean, this is everything that a performance coach would want. It's international. Uh, it's a big event. There's coaches from all over the world there. Uh, they treat me and look at me like I'm a rock star because I come from the United States. And I remember I just wasn't that excited to be there. And that was, you know, that was the first kind of red flag. It's like, what's wrong with you? You should be tickled to death to be here. This is big time. Um, and then about a month later, after that experience, a friend of mine uh, said, we're holding our company retreat for 200 fitness professionals. He worked for a fitness company um, in Jamaica and we need a leadership speaker. You know, I've seen you speak in basketball. Would you like to come talk to us uh, on leadership? And I was like, yeah, you, you had me at Jamaica. I'll be there. And that was technically the first quote unquote corporate talk I ever gave. And the moment I stepped off stage, like I was, I was invigorated. I, I was, I was, I was drunk from being on stage, like how good that felt. I was fully intoxicated in the moment. And the moment I walked off stage, I said, okay, this is what I need to be doing now. This is how I need to be feeling. And, uh, came back now. I'd already had, um, a fall lineup of events of basketball events and commitments that I still needed to stick with. But I knew at that moment I was going to make that pivot. And I started making changes immediately. And the very first thing I did was I reached out to all of my friends, colleagues, and mentors in the business world, and I made it a point to reach out to them and say, look, here's what I've been doing. Here's where, what knowledge I have. Here's the experience I have. Um, can you help me say what, what stuff through my past do you think would be valuable to you and to the business world? And I, I listened to them to say, okay, here's, here's what companies need. Here's what leaders need. And I, I met with several of them and took rigorous notes and then started to build that out. So I worked from the inside out and said, hey, you know, what does the business world need? What does the speaking world need? And where does that align with what I'm good at and what I know? That's going to be my sweet spot and that's where I'm going to live. So I started off with hyper focus, which, which certainly helped. Um, and then I really leaned heavily on my basketball relationships. I mean, I'm a relationship guy and I had forged some amazing ones in basketball and it was amazing. Um, and I'm still to this day, incredibly grateful and appreciative to how many people stepped up and, you know, uh, I'm making this example up, but it's something to the effect of, you know, Hey, Alan, I'm a high school coach down in Mississippi and I followed your work for years. Well, my brother-in-law owns a company and they're always looking for speakers. Let me introduce you to him and see if that turns into something. And I had so many people that did things like that, that really got me, me springboarded into doing some events. And, you know, for 2017, which was my first year speaking, I intentionally took a shotgun approach and I would speak anywhere to anyone at any time for any fee. I wanted to get in my reps and I did that. And I got to speak at a ton of events and I really got to learn my craft and learn, you know, the speaking uh, the speaking chops, if you will. And then I've been able to narrow that down significantly in 2018 and say, okay, you know, now I know that I have the value for this certain fee and I know what types of audiences I resonate with best. 
now these are the only gigs that I'm going to accept and had much more clarity this past year. And now for 2019, uh, I'll continue to whittle that down and tighten the screws and, and speak for the fees that I believe that I'm, I'm worth and for the value that I can over deliver and only speak to the audiences that I know I'm going to be in harmony with. And, you know, uh, at present with what I have currently booked for 2019, that, that will be more than enough to keep, keep growing my business at a, at a very productive rate. Following your gut, your relationship guy, and hyper-focus were some of your keys right there. You're now entering a new chapter. You've got the new book coming out in just a few days. What's it like, first of all, writing a book? And then how did you prepare for such a task? It's a really cool feeling because, you know, I want to go on record and say I hated reading in school. I mean, loathed it in high school and even college. And uh, through some introspective work, I look back, it was because someone was always telling me what I had to read and telling me what I was supposed to be interested in. And that just didn't work for me. So uh, once I graduated college and was like, wow, you mean I can read anything that I want? I can read the things that interest me. Then I started devouring books and I've been a voracious reader ever since. Uh, and under reading, you know, now I put uh, podcasts under that, you know, shows like this. I mean, anything that will disseminate quality information, I devour. And, you know, I look back, I mean, I could list a, a good handful of books that have had a profound impact on my life. Never met the author, just reading the words on the page caused a major shift in my mind, in my perspective, uh, in the way that I live my life. And I thought to myself, man, if, if I could write something that was as valuable to other people as these books have been to me, I would imagine that'd be one of the most fulfilling, you know, uh, feelings that you could have. And, and that was one of the reasons for wanting to write the book was I've had some very unique experiences and I'd love to share them with other people in a formal way. And I'm sincerely hoping that, that some people that will really resonate with them and that they'll look at this book as something that, that helped shift something in them the way that those books had for me. So that was really one of the reasons. And that, that was kind of under my professional bucket list. But then it also, um, for, for a more tangible approach, as I was entering the corporate world, as I told you, I had no brand recognition. I have no credibility. I'd never had a corporate job in my life. And I knew that writing a book would help establish credibility in this new space. And, you know, now I'm incredibly confident when I say that I didn't have brand awareness or credibility, that was only because no one knew who I was. I know that I'm good. And I can say that with humility because I've put in the work and the effort and the unseen hours to deserve the right to say that. So none of this was questioning whether or not I thought I could do it at a good level. It was a matter of how do others see me because they don't know who I am. And I thought the book would add credibility to that. And that was one of the main reasons for writing it. And then the other was the book actually forced me to curate all of my content, to get super hyper-focused, to use that word again, and, and really drill down on the most important content that I have. And it got me really organized. You know, putting the book together is what allowed me to put together that a la carte speaking menu. Uh, because those two things go hand in hand. So um, for that, those reasons is why I chose to write the book uh, and is why I'll, I'll choose to write another one. You know, after this one's launched and I've, I've enjoyed this, uh, it'll be time to, to work on something else because I absolutely uh, thoroughly enjoyed the entire process from start to finish. Yep. You mentioned the launch of this book officially out January 8th. The book is Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best. I know the listeners are probably dying for me to ask. You mentioned the books that had a profound impact on your life. Any of those books you want to list? 
Uh, there's several now I'm, and this will either, uh, this will either get your listeners to clap or to give me the finger, but I'm a diehard coach K fan. I'm a Duke basketball fan. And, and I know for anyone that follows, you know, college basketball, that it's usually polarizing, either love Duke or you hate Duke. But, uh, he had a book called, uh, leading with the heart. Um, that, I mean, that's one of a handful of books that I've read multiple times. Uh, and that had a profound impact on me and, and there've been, there've been several others. I mean, uh, even most recently, you know, with, with Aubrey Marcus own the day, own your life. I mean, I read that a couple of months ago and it had a profound effect on me. So there've been several that, that do that. And I think that's the goal of a good book. Uh, is to get you to think differently or, or slightly act differently. Um, you know, just to make some type of change. And yeah, there've been a bunch of books that have done that. And, and I hope mine does that. And, and I'll say this, you know, my book is, is basic. It is not a high academic, high IQ type of read. It's full of stories and lessons, but, but basics that I firmly believe if people are open to and adopt, you know, can set you on a path to higher performance. You definitely received a lot of middle fingers there. I'm a UNC Tar Heel. But oh, <laughs> no. I should have done I, my prep I, work. I have Coach K's book on my bookshelf. A huge fan of his, his leadership style. So we'll definitely get that linked up in the show notes. But Alan, your book, <laughs> Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best. Where can the listeners stay connected with you? You put out some great content. I really enjoy following you on Twitter. Where else can they get the book? Oh, I, th I thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. That, that motivates me and inspires me to, to keep churning out content. I want to know that it's, it's having an impact, uh, anything and everything on the book one can find at raiseyourgamebook.com. Um, and anyone that's interested in anything else I have cooking, you can go to allensteinjr.com. And I'm also at Allenstein Jr. Uh, on Instagram and LinkedIn and, and the major social channels. And, and I love engaging. So anyone listening to this, uh, if any portion of this resonated and you want to talk shop a little bit, uh, please don't hesitate, you know, reach out, hit me up on social. Uh, it would be great to connect. Awesome. We're going to have all that linked up in the show notes. Congratulations. The book's launching in a few days. Very excited for you. And thanks for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, Sean. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I have ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in, one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure. 
because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.